Welcome to episode 10 of the Pharmacist Matters podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bates. This is our first podcast in 2021, and much like 2020, we remain in a seemingly perpetual state of disarray when it comes to getting COVID-19 under control. Despite provincial lockdowns and public health restrictions, we continue to experience the spread of COVID, especially in long-term care homes. There is no question that we need more molecular-based PCR testing and rapid antigen testing to complement a successful vaccination program that has seen its early challenges with supply and operations. There are so many questions swirling around about the COVID vaccine, the variants and the strains, and how will we pull off a successful vaccination campaign of this magnitude considering all the complexities that COVID presents. Joining me today on the program are two experts to help us work through some of these issues. It is fantastic to have a pharmacist and pharmacy owner alongside a family physician discuss how working together we can achieve success. I often hear about Team Ontario and One Team when it comes to the vaccination program, and I think this is particularly true and important when we want to combat COVID-19. There is lots to discuss, so let's get right at it. Joining me today is Kristen Watt, a pharmacist and owner of Kristen's Pharmacy, located in Southampton on Treaty 72 land on the Bruce Peninsula. Kristen's Pharmacy is committed to purposeful patient care and focuses on delivering clinical services in a collaborative care model. Kristen is also the consultant pharmacist for Chapman House Residential Hospice of Grey Bruce and teaches palliative care in the region. She is also a mom of two busy boys and likes to work on her skills as an amateur soccer player. Also joining me today is Dr. Ali Khan Abdullah, who is an experienced family doctor, palliative, sports, cosmetic, and travel medicine consultant. Currently, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and an academic consultant for the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Ottawa. He is also the chairperson of the Section of General and Family Physicians. Dr. Abdullah has been recognized for his contributions in healthcare and has received many accolades, such as the Family Physician of the Year for Eastern Ontario in 2008. Driven by community engagement, he is involved as a mentor, organizing educational events, and has contributed his thought leadership to various media outlets. Dr. Abdullah is a proud father of three and a published poet. I wanted to start with discussing some of the key considerations that we have to uh, implement in order to have a successful vaccination campaign. Kristen, I'm going to start with you. What are your thoughts on how we can do and what we can do to ensure we get this right? Three key points that I really think that we need to consider on the ground level. The first is patient education, providing the best information that we have in a timely fashion in an understandable format to as many people as we can to encourage them to accept vaccination. It's going to be really important for everybody on the ground to understand how to communicate and what to communicate to our patients. Second is patient mobility. We need to understand that we have a very big province and we need to be able to get to the vaccine to as many people as possible or as many people as possible to the vaccine. And there's going to be some challenges, especially in our rural and remote areas. And last, I think uh, a really important part of what's coming is uh, the vac- a vaccine registry. It's really important that we understand who received what and when in order to properly vaccinate them uh, with the second dose and in order to track who is still outstanding and in need of the vaccine. Dr. Abdullah, 
you've been very active on Twitter. I've been following a lot of your posts, talking a lot about what we need to do and how we need to work together. What are your thoughts on uh, what needs to be considered for a successful vaccination campaign? Thank you, Justin. I'm very impressed and happy to be here. I think our relationships between pharmacists and uh, family physicians is critical to primary uh, healthcare delivery in the province, and I'm honored to be here. I'm, I'm going to think about a few other ideas. I think building the idea of vaccine confidence, which I think we'll talk about later on, I think that goes with informa- information sharing and truth sharing. I think it's important that we have adequate PPE available to us. I know that is um, you know, relatively easy uh, to access, but it's not equally available throughout the province. And finally, it's the idea of consent forms. It would be valuable to have thought through the consent forms and have people having those discussions and those consent forms signed in advance. So when the vaccine gets available to us in our community, we can start getting vaccines into arms. That's where the benefit lies. You know, one of the observations that that I have is that there's there's a lot of information out there in the general public. Uh, some of it, uh, I think, reflects uh, some hesitancy that we've we've referenced uh, in the outset, uh, confidence in the vaccine uh, within the general population, but even within the healthcare community. I keep hearing about uh, healthcare professionals who uh, aren't going to get the vaccine. There's been instances where. In long-term care homes, uh, about 50% of healthcare workers receive the vaccine. And what do you think we can do to build the confidence and uh, starting with with our own uh, healthcare provider colleagues uh, across the, the system? The biggest consideration here is adequate information in a way that's digestible, explainable, challengeable, and the right answers are given to people. It's a shame if our own healthcare providers uh, are, you know, 50 to 60% willing to have it. And then that balance has hesitancy. And remember, it's hesitancy. It's not flat denial. What they're saying is, I want to be critically judging the value, the benefit, the harms, the side effects and the risks of getting this vaccine. That's all they're asking for. I think it's something that's actually quite doable. What's your experience so far from your colleagues? Um, are people asking the right questions? Is there concerns around uh, the speed at which the vaccines were approved? I mean, what do you think are the underlying uh, issues around confidence? Yeah, speed is one of them. You know, the fact that there's so many different varieties of them that are available out there, um, you know, that they're in the early uh, round, there were some side effects that some people ended up having. And it's that general uncertainty about a technology, mRNA vaccine insertion uh, into people. What is the effect of that? Christian, what's your experience so far from your interactions with your colleagues and what you're hearing from patients? I've heard some hesitancy uh, on the front lines, and we're also hearing a lot of excitement. I think it's really important that we listen to the specifics of the hesitancy. People want to feel heard and not dismissed, oh, no, it's just safe, don't worry about it. They want to feel heard. And we have an opportunity, a great opportunity to address their specific concerns. So I try to do that. Well, what about it are you worried about? What specifically about it are you worried about? In some people, they find it hard to articulate that, which helps them come to the realization that it might be fear from the outside. And so that opportunity to listen and give them my time has has changed minds, which is fantastic. I think another thing that will prove really successful 
in small rural communities, especially, is seeing those people that you do trust, your pharmacist or your family physician, get the vaccine. I plan to do so publicly. Uh, I'm sure that I will be crying when it happens because I've been waiting so long for it, but I'm willing to share that experience so people who trust my value and my judgment will feel more comfortable getting it as well. We talked a little bit uh, already about uh, the need for baseline information that's credible, uh, consistent, and coordinated across the system uh, for all healthcare providers. We've seen a disturbing trend well before COVID-19 of anti-vaxxers. We're starting to see that spill over to anti-maskers, you know, protests around anti-lockdowns and, and the, the, the lack of confidence in some of the science behind it. And I think it's really important, uh, given some of the misinformation out there about vaccines in general, and particularly the COVID vaccine, to educate everyone about the science behind it. Uh, what is an mRNA vaccine and how does it differ from a traditional vaccine? Historically, what we did is we injected a small amount of a particular infectious agent into animals uh, and we would get a response back and then we would give people immunoglobulin that would be a response to and then as we became a bit more sophisticated we gave little pieces of uh, DNA material or RNA material that we would let uh, a virus transport to someone else uh, and then the body would react to that little bit of information this one is really quite different we're actually getting a very tiny little bit of information messenger RNA information like a post-it note that has the information in a coating of fat that tells the body, you know, what does that bit of uh, post-it or information genetic uh, material look like? Uh, and it makes the body aware of that. And then, then you are prepared when you see a virus that has that spike protein available on how to manage it. That little bit of uh, genetic material is not incorporated into our own DNA material. It just gives our antibodies uh, an opportunity, our uh, immune system an opportunity of how to fight. Right now, we have two Health Canada approved vaccines in Canada. We have the Moderna vaccine, of course, and the Pfizer BioNTech one. Um, but certainly, there's going to be others. Um, and I think part of the challenge may be how do you determine when you have perhaps three or more vaccines, which vaccine is most appropriate for which person? be interesting to unpack that a little bit. Uh, are we considering things around guidelines of people with comorbidities, health complications, and which, which vaccine would actually be most effective for them? Is there work uh, that's happening in, in that front? Yeah, ab absolutely, Justin. Um, we're being very thoughtful about what the side effect profile is, whether someone can be or have a lower or weaker immune system, uh, whether they are more prone to having uh, you know, a reaction, an exaggerated reaction. I'll give you an example. The Shingrex vaccine has a little extra bit to it called an adjuvant. It potentiates or increases the immune response. Given to some people, they get actually quite sick. They get feverish. They get muscle aches and chills. They feel awful after getting it. But it's a way of making that immune response and the memory of it become more powerful. So for each one of the different vaccines that are coming up for COVID-19, there will be pros and cons. There'll be people that will uh, get the maximum advantage of it. And that's where the healthcare professional gets involved. Kristen, do you have any thoughts to add to that? I do. At this time, with only two vaccines uh, approved in Canada, um, I, I continue to encourage my patients to be open-minded to receive whatever vaccine is offered to them first. 
the best vaccine is the vaccine that you get the earliest, uh, knowing that we will do everything in our power to give them the best option in the moment to them. Uh, and I continue to share this message on my social media that you get what you get and you don't get upset. We There's uh, a very good chance that patients will not have the opportunity to choose but this will be the first time that they're exposed to the fact that there are options. Um, when, when patients ask me this question, I, I ask them back. I said, do you know the brand of the tetanus shot you received last? And it kind of opens the door for us to discuss how there are um, many manufacturers of different vaccines in some instances. And your healthcare professional always selects the best, safest option that they have available to them at the time. And continuing to share that message, I think, will be very important because we certainly don't want people to skip out uh, of a vaccine appointment, hoping for a different brand later on. Yeah. And you actually raised uh, a great point that triggered my uh, thought process around uh, the changing requirements between first and second dose. And I think there is confusion around the effectiveness. And and I know the product monograph guidelines from Pfizer suggested 21 days in between. And now we're hearing largely uh, due to some supply issues, it can be up to 42 days. Um, uh, what what is the science behind that, um, Dr. Abdullah? Is is it still safe and effective to get it uh, in a uh, much longer time period and waiting, or should it still be targeting the 21 days? Yeah. So when they did the science behind this, they did have in the evaluative phase, they spent some time seeing a delay in the time that people ended up getting the vaccines. They recommended 21 or 28 days based on which vaccine it was. And then they allowed an, a period of time where people didn't quite come in as compliantly, as precisely and crisply as they need to be. And so the allowance will allow the pot, product monogram to meet the requirements of the 90% efficacy rate and above up to 42 days. Uh, anything after that, they do not feel that its level of efficacy will be high. Some people have said that it would still be quite high, but there is science that needs to be done to understand how that drop-off would happen after uh, that 42-day period. And that begs the question, what about mixing uh, doses? So if I start with a Pfizer or Moderna, and then my second one is a different uh, vaccine, is, is that, um, I, don't, I know there was discussions in the UK about that, given, once again, supply issues and making sure everybody gets two doses. Is that... Uh, something that you would consider to be medically appropriate? So there's no science behind that. And I, and I want to go back to this point that if you follow the science, if you follow the way that the application was done, the treatments were done, the calculations of immune uh, titers were done after the fact, if you do all those things and you follow it, then you're going to get the greatest immunity effect and you're not going to have bad outcomes or bad uh, or very specific variants of COVID-19 that end up forming because we didn't follow the product monogram. And so we want to stay to the science because the science ensures that there's no bad outcomes. And when there's no bad outcomes, it's less likely to get vaccine hesitancy. We build confidence if we follow the science. It's nice to contemplate those things. But once again, if you contemplate them, test them, make sure you understand what the implications are, and then you can choose that moving forward. So maybe a broader question. Uh, are we confident that uh, policymakers at the federal and provincial level are following the science, or are we driving this through other um, 
uh, objectives? I think there's definite opportunities to improve communication. No matter what happens at the federal level or the provincial level, not everybody's going to be happy. We know that pre-pandemic. Um, so I do think that the in Ontario specifically, the um, vaccine distribution task force that was created has really great leaders and thinkers on it. And I was very excited. Um, there are times that we do get concerned that perhaps their guidance isn't being followed. Um, so I do encourage uh, people to keep speaking out. Things do happen when voices unite. Uh, around Christmas time, when there was that lull in vaccine administration, there was a great call out, especially on Twitter, um, to the provincial government to get things going again and quickly. And an acknowledgement was made by the task force that there was that lull and perhaps shouldn't have been. So while I don't always think that things are communicated or executed as well, I can't imagine the job uh, that those people hold at the top. And I certainly don't envy them. And I do appreciate when they do listen to the voices on the ground when we do uh, speak in unison for the things that we need. It's it's a nice segue into some of the complexities within the supply chain, the logistics, and just how uh, challenging this is to pull off successfully when you think about the ordering happening at a federal level and then through the formula down to the per capita amounts that the provinces get. And then how do you operationalize that given some of the complexities of the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine in particular with storage uh, parameters, uh, cold cold chain uh, requirements and, and, and so forth. I'm wondering, you know, how do we do this? I mean, how do we continue to ensure that if you want a vaccine, you get a vaccine? Given that uh, complex logistical challenge, you know, what are some of your early insights into what we can do uh, to make sure that uh, we're, we're a solution, that we help uh, government and stakeholders roll this out successfully? I had an extensive conversation with a friend who is on a regional vaccine task force last evening. I'm also on a regional vaccine um, distribution task force. And uh, what if I, if I was in charge? If I could make suggestions, this is what I would suggest, that the vaccines arrive uh, through the federal channel. They are distributed to the uh, closest cold chain freezers in Toronto. Regional representatives pick up the vaccines and bring them to their region. I think that with the census data and the voting rules that we have, we could send information out to each and every person in an area and book them an appointment either at a physician clinic a mass vaccination clinic, or at a pharmacy for a particular date. You get it in the mail the same as you get your voter registration card. You know what date you have to be there, and it's all tracked. And you also know when you leave from that vaccine, 21 or 28 days later, you are to arrive again for the second shot. I really think that we need to be going to the people and not having the people come to us. For the vaccines, we need to tell people when their vaccine doses are scheduled. I think we'll capture more people that way. Not that people are hesitant, but people are busy uh, and people are complacent at times. And if we if we uh, ask them to come on a certain date and time, I think we'll have great success. And we won't have situations where mass vaccination clinics could potentially be overwhelmed due to response or people who really want the vaccine might try to come ahead of time. I don't blame them. I want it as soon as possible, too. 
So if we gave as much information, booked these appointments ahead of time, used every vaccinator available in a community through public health, family physicians, and pharmacies, we would be able to hit as many people as possible. Great points. Uh, Dr. Abdullah, what are your thoughts on a successful rollout? How do we pull this off? Well, first, I want to I want to make uh, my nomination for Kristen Watt to be in charge of everything because I loved her ideas. <laughs> uh, and secondly, um, I'm just going to add some things that may help uh, make the uh, rollout a little bit smoother. I like the idea of all vaccinators. And so I think there are many more outside of our communities you know, RNs and uh, nurse practitioners. We may even want to think about, you know, chiropractors and other regulated healthcare professionals as well to help us massage therapists. I'm thinking that it would be useful to think about hub mobile units, uh, you know, vans that go around and get into communities that are hard and difficult to get into. And finally, I really want people to be mindful of the fact that everyone wants their vaccine as soon as possible. But priority groups, vulnerable populations really should be at the front of the line. And so older people, people that are, you know, challenged with multiple comorbidities, uh, people that are homeless, um, we need to think about them or other congregate settings. Um, I think that's really important for us to think about. I love the idea of the mobile units because we know that access to healthcare services in marginalized communities, uh, high-risk populations, vulnerable populations is a challenge. Um, they don't always go to get care. So bringing care to them uh, and bringing the vaccine through those mobile units, I think, will be really important. Um, the government, of course, has put forward a, an ethical framework and priority populations in, in three different phases of, uh, of the rollout. Um, and, and depending on you know what you read these days, whether we're in phase one, phase two, and how that will blend with the supply coming in at different intervals now that we've had some delays. But looking at the high-risk population category within phase one, the, you know, the healthcare workers is a, is a key component of that, as well as uh, long-term care home residents. Um, but I do hear a lot of frustration, both from our members and more broadly, about queue jumping. And, and that really, uh, I think, is, is something that could affect the integrity of the rollout. Um, you know, it's, it's on a daily basis, I get uh, emails from, from pharmacists who say, you know, I'm putting uh, a lot of risk uh, on the front lines. And then I hear about uh, my sister or my friend who's working from home in the basement but knew somebody uh, or at the back office of, of a hospital when we have emergency uh, room physicians and uh, healthcare workers in ICU dealing with COVID patients that still haven't been vaccinated. So I'm wondering, how do we, how do we address that? And do you think that this will cause some challenges for us if that continues? You know, I, I think we need to be thoughtful about a couple of things. And uh, my, my colleague on the panel has spoken about this as well. It's an issue that this is a hard job. Um, and trying to get it perfect uh, is not going to happen. There are always going to be errors. So some of it requires us to have this group mentality, this idea in our mind that society matters when we play by the rules and we respect one another. We make sure the most vulnerable, the people that are going to get the greatest value, get vaccinations, that we mask effectively, that we stay home and reduce the spread. You know, we, we haven't even hit 1% of the population yet. And so if that's the case, then we really need to think about holding on to all of those public health measures. I hope people understand, you know, sort of the bigger picture that 
things will work better when we work together. Kristen, what are your thoughts? Uh, are you hearing the same things from your patients or um, your colleagues? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and it is concerning. Uh, this time, I, I can see why some of the queue jumping has happened. Having extra doses at the end of the day, not wanting to waste them, that's great. If it's not something that people themselves are seeking out or doing on purpose, um, then I do understand why it's happened. What I tell people is to remember that the vaccine in your arm helps you. The vaccine in someone else's arm, arm helps everybody. And that's key. It's, it's so important that we vaccinate as many people as we can. And while we need to focus on the priority groups, any vaccine will help slow the spread of COVID-19. And that's really important. So we really need to get as many vaccinated as possible. I do hope that we do better at focusing, especially on our long-term care population. Uh, we've had enough vaccine in the province to vaccinate them and they are not fully vaccinated yet. So my, my hope is that becomes the priority if it's not already. Um, but remembering that no matter who we vaccinate, it will help everybody. Well, you raised the the issue of the long-term care homes, and uh, certainly it's, it's a tragedy uh, that's on, unfolding as we speak. Uh, I live not that far from Roberta Place, uh, where the uh, Red Cross has stepped in in Aurelia uh, Hospital to uh, take over because they were uh, co um, habit, uh, I guess co-mingling the COVID patients with non-COVID patients, and it just became a disaster. Um, and and we're not able to roll out the vaccine quick enough. So. What can be done to target those populations quicker? Um, you know, and I, I particularly think about it now that we may have a more aggressive strain, the UK strain, or however we uh, end up labeling this, because this seems to be spreading faster and being uh, perhaps even more deadly. Um, and on that front, um, so it's sort of a two-part question for both of you. The first part is, what can we do to get that vaccine in arms quicker? And how do we enable family physicians, nurse practitioners, and pharmacists to be part of it now. Um, and what about the variant? And will this uh, vaccine still be effective against the variant? And do we know yet? Thanks. Um, the variant's out in the community. It's out uh, in, in long-term care centers. It's just as simple as that. And it's in multiple countries all over the world. And it'll be all over Canada. Um, there are places that we have incredible... Uh, connections to community. So Toronto East General, Michael Garron area, they've vaccinated all the long-term care centers and they're on to retirement homes. They've done a great job. Collingwood is another stellar place for that. Guelph is doing a great job. So I guess what I'm saying is that there are places where the community, where pharmacists, nurse practitioners, family doctors have a community of practice that they work well together. And so the success of being able to move forward in that is to allow places that have their own um, networks to just get the job, give them the vaccine, let them do the job. Other places, you need more centralized control. Maybe you need the military to come in there and do the vaccination clinics. Maybe you need the hospital to step in and do that stuff. Maybe there's a family health organization, a group of doctors, or a, a particularly well-known pharmacy that everyone goes to and visits in a community, and they should be the central hub of getting that out uh, into the long-term care centers. Um, there is a different solution for different areas, but it just requires people to uh, cede some of the power away from themselves um, and allow people to step up, and they will. 
Kristen, um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and what do you see as some of the challenges from an operational standpoint uh, once community phase three uh, becomes a reality? I think it's important that we need to remember that although COVID is new to us, vaccinating population is not, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, nursing homes vaccinate their entire population every year for influenza and most of their staff. Pharmacies and community health clinics, physicians and public health vaccinate a great deal many of Ontarians every year for influenza. We have the ability and, uh, and the history in place. We can do it. Uh, simply at this point, we need the vaccine to do it. Um, what I see from a logistical challenge when we do get vaccine in community pharmacy, we'll be scheduling our patients, um, some way of documenting that they received it, uh, the vaccine, so that it's uh, a public registry would be my dream. Um, and then ensuring that the uh, patients return in that timely fashion. So all of that scheduling piece to get the people in the doors is really key. Ahead of flu shot season last year, I had planned to do drive-up clinics, um, and we had everything ready. We had timers for the tops of cars, so we would know when cars could drive away. We had clipboards that were plastic that we could sanitize between patient use. I had an entire army of volunteers ready to go. We were, I, we were set. I have syringes piled in my office. We were set to go. We did not get the flu um, supply that I needed at the time that it was planned. Eventually, everybody who did need the flu shot got it from our pharmacy, um, but we weren't able to go ahead with the drive-up clinic. I think those types of logistics that have been put in place previously for administering the flu shot, especially in rural and remote areas, can be redeployed for this COVID uh, time uh, with great success. How do we get the frontline healthcare providers in the community vaccinated as quickly as possible? And, you know, there's talk about this being part of phase one, and I see it in the the uh, distribution rollout plan from the province that uh, all healthcare workers are supposed to be vaccinated by March. When I look at the calendar and the supply and where we're at, I wonder if that is feasible. But I think it's really important that uh, in parallel to priority populations, high risk uh, and so forth, that we also get all healthcare providers uh, vaccinated because they're putting themselves at risk every day in serving uh, their communities and patients. Yeah, I, I like the fact that you brought up that tension, right? We have a we have a limited supply. There's a delay in the distribution coming to us. They say that all the vaccine that we've ordered will get to us, but when and how fast is becoming the, the issue. The question that you really have is the idea of how do we make sure that we get all the vulnerable population, particularly long-term care where most of the deaths are happening, um, and then also make sure that all the vaccinators get vaccinated. And, you know, the answer to that is whatever works. You, know, you just heard from my, my colleague, Kristen, on the, on the panel that, you know, different communities do different things. And so in Ottawa, there is a large hospital presence. So a lot of people in the community can go to the hospital and get done. They shouldn't have to be hospital employees. They just need to be a healthcare provider or a, a potential vaccinator. So that's one way, you know, drive-throughs, max vaccination clinics. Maybe there'll be, once again, another clinic that most people are connected to or a pharmacy that most people are connected to or a CHC. We'll do whatever it takes to get it going, but let's do it. And let's focus on what another thing that's, that was said, there's not enough supply. We, we just need to keep pounding 
um, and and calling up and saying, let's get the supply, let's get the supply, because that's the only way we can move forward. Yeah, no, great points. And I think part of that supply uh, question is going to be addressed through the Health Canada approval of other vaccines. So as we look at down downstream, the AstraZeneca a vaccine and certainly others like Johnson & Johnson, which have hope around a single dose, um, which will uh, help when we try to vaccinate uh, once we get beyond the priority populations and most vulnerable and all of the essential workers, because you have the priority healthcare workers and you have the essential workers, uh, the backbone of our economy through the food supply chain and, and many other uh, industries that we want to uh, prioritize indigenous populations uh, and then moving into more of the general population as we get further along in, in 2021. You know, the hope is that everybody that wants a vaccine can get one by the end of the year. And I think that's going to be so critical to get our lives back to some sense of normal, whatever that new normal is and post-pandemic life. Uh, so part of the the challenge here is, yes, there's, there's absolutely tragic things happening with deaths and uh, challenges uh, on the rollout of the vaccine, testing and all of that. But the other implications that we hear a lot about, uh, you know, in terms of mental health, um, lack of screening, uh, people going to get screening for cancer and other uh, chronic uh, and serious illnesses, you know, what kind of toll is that going to take in the medium to long term in our healthcare system? Uh, you know, has yet to be known, but I think there's going to be significant burden uh, as we emerge from this, uh, once we, we solve some of the supply and logistical challenges. And I think that's going to be the uh, one of the legacies of this. Um, and I think we're already seeing it. And just some of the um, really heart-wrenching things of seeing healthcare workers commit suicide and um, the stress that uh, healthcare providers are under in all different care settings. I mean, it's just tremendous, the burden uh, that's on us. Um, I wanted to get, you know, give you both a, an opportunity to you know, just talk a little bit from a personal standpoint of how difficult this is and what you're hearing from colleagues and how we can help support, um, on top of everything we've talked about today, healthcare providers. It's a great question, and it's a really important thing that needs to be discussed. And mental health isn't going to come for those of us who are on the front lines and dealing with this through webinars or, or more time spent staring at screens or more uh, time demands uh, on us. Um, nine months ago, people would take to the streets every night and bang on pots to thank healthcare workers. And, and now, uh, more than ever, we see, especially on social media, um, the deniers, the refusals, the, uh, the stories about um, frontline workers who have to insist that people wear masks and, and, and how poorly they're treated. And, and I don't know what the answer is uh, to help us get through them, get through this. But I just want everybody hearing this to know that I see you, we see you, uh, the other people that you're working side by side with, they see you. Um, and, and really just relying on each other in whatever small way or big way that you need is really, really important. Uh, getting off some of the social media is helpful making your social media more friendly to yourself uh, is helpful. And something somebody very smart said to me uh, this year that helped me a lot because I do like to share a lot of vaccine info is that you don't have to win an argument when you're talking to somebody who's a denialist or somebody who wants to discount your experience. You don't have to win. You can walk away from that discussion uh, without 
proving your point or having the other person uh, agree with you. And I, I will say that has been exceptionally therapeutic for me in getting through this year. I know what I know. I am so confident in what I know. Um, I also know what I don't know. And I'm so lucky to learn from so many people. And it's, it's not up to me to change everybody's mind. I do my best. And I hope that the fence sitters who kind of watch from the sidelines get what they need out of the information I share uh, and then are able to make their decisions as well. That's such a powerful message. And uh, I know uh, this is close to home for you, Dr. Abdullah, knowing some colleagues who um, have gone through so much uh, during this time frame, and, uh, you know, perhaps even underappreciated uh, people not understanding just exactly how challenging this is to continue to, you know, remain open and help patients. And, and it's what we do, but uh, the toll is just uh, unreal. So what are your thoughts on this? You know, prior to COVID, the amount of physicians, according to the Canadian Medical Association, that were at burnout was around 20-25%. And a little bit below, around 10%, there was a suicide rate in Canada for uh, physicians. Uh, that number has doubled uh, in reaction to all kinds of things. A lot of these are silent stories. And, and I can, I'll just highlight one story. Uh, a, a gentleman who is a, a well-known neurosurgeon, uh, in the beginning, unable to uh, look after his patients, unable to do his trade, unable to, you know, look after that, you know, nine or 10 or 12 month waiting list that he has of people that needed uh, urgent, semi-urgent care um, and had to go on serve. Can you imagine that? A neurosurgeon going on serve. Um, and then the government goes on and, and gives, you know, physicians a loan payment to make up for the differences. So the server gets taken back and then a loan payment is given for the past earnings. Um, and, and now uh, April is coming up and those loan payments are due. So our government uh, kindly calling healthcare providers and physicians heroes and now expecting them to pay back loans as they're in the middle of the crisis to keep feeding in and working hard. So that one story. And then I want to talk a little bit about the positive that you heard from Kristen as well. You know, no social media, staying away from the news. You know, it gets draining to see the number of people that are passing away or homes that are affected or people that you know that are being challenged. Uh, walking around in nature. We're we're so lucky to live in Canada. We have multiple seasons and we have all kinds of parks available to us. Um, you know, I found many people using their family, using uh, reading, reading Netflix, and enjoying meals. The taste of food is so much more powerful now as we unwind and unplug and recharge because we're sort of halfway through this marathon. What a great theme about family and love and hope. And, and out of all of this, perhaps that's the silver lining is that we've come together both as healthcare providers and as a society to hopefully appreciate what matters and understand the importance of um, sustaining a healthcare system with capacity. And maybe that's the legacy here of ensuring investments and more innovation into healthcare services so that if and, and when we get into another situation where we're faced with existential threats like a pandemic, um, uh, and we've seen more and more of these when you go back to SARS, H1N1, and now this, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where, where all this goes. But I, I do think there are some great stories that are compelling that have come out of all of this misery. 
I wanted to conclude with a couple of questions. Uh, one being, do you see this uh, scenario where this could end up being similar to the flu shot, a seasonal vaccine? I think that it's possible and it will only be known as more time goes on. Every day we get more data. The beauty of mRNA vaccines is that they're very adaptable very quickly. We do not have to grow more proteins inside of chicken eggs. We can simply adjust the sequence of the mRNA or add additional sequences of mRNA into the vial and use those for future vaccines. So with variants, we can quickly adapt to them. Uh, and so only time will tell what comes. And if that's the case, I do think we are really well equipped to continue to vaccinate yearly against uh, this virus if that's what's needed. And then the last part of that question is to address the, um, the, the thirst for information out there. So many people, both in the general population and within our healthcare community, are looking for information as things evolve around vaccine development, um, patient questions. What would you recommend to your colleagues in the pub- public where to go to get all this information? That's a great question because there are many places that one can go and it depends how you consume your information. So if you're a, a listener, then uh, podcasts, they, they're out there. There's many out there that have up-to-date information on them. If you're a reader, I get a lot of mine from Twitter with the links that are provided and going back into reading some of the primary, secondary, tertiary literature that's attached to the tweets but I find it's a great way to consume a lot of pieces of information really quickly. Um, I'm also paying attention to the Health Canada website, the Ontario Public Health website, Ontario Pharmacists Association, Canadian Pharmacists Association. There's so many people that are disseminating so much great information. It can get overwhelming. So pick your places, pick how you want to take it in and focus on those. Also remember, you don't have to be the only person who knows all the information. It's okay to take a break. Uh, It's okay to not know. Uh, It's okay to ask colleagues to help. So consume what you can. Be prepared to answer the basic questions for our patients. I think that's really, really important. It's also okay to say, I don't know, but I will find out. Because that's what a true professional does. They, They know what they don't know, but they know how to find the right answer and to help their patients make the right decision. Dr. Dula, what are your thoughts on the seasonality of this and the mutations? And are we going to be faced with a similar situation where we need to operationalize this uh, on a more permanent basis in terms of a cycle of getting vaccinated? Yeah, no, I no, I agree with my colleague. You know, um, there there's going to be some variability. There's going to be some possibility that we'll have to keep vaccinating. Coronavirus is a very common cold virus. So, you know, it's around in our population, whether it ends up mutating to a way that affects us more worsely or less so as we move forward. Studies will tell, and I agree with that. In regards to the the question that you uh, asked about um, understanding things, once again, there are, there are many things that are available out there. Medical doctors tend to follow medical literature. You know, other healthcare perfector, uh, professionals follow other literature that they use. And, and there is aggregate information that's available out there. And I, and I love the point that you don't need to know all the answers. I love that. I'd like, I'd like to just say a final closing thing. Number one, I think it's absolutely integral that we continue to work as a larger network of healthcare professionals. I think that's absolutely critical. And I thank you for inviting me 
uh, and having my colleague on this panel to discuss this very important topic. And I think there's a lot more that we can do together. And I wish this relationship keeps growing. Thank you. Well, those are are great words to conclude our uh, 10th podcast on. And I want to thank both of you for sharing your insights and also for being frontline healthcare professionals and all the work that you do. I can't bang a pot right now, but if I could, I would. And uh, I think this is an important conversation to both of your points that we need to continue. We need to continue to educate uh, both our colleagues and and the uh, broader population about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and the importance of getting vaccinated for a host of vaccinations, including COVID-19. Um, and again, thank, thank you for both of you uh, just being very honest and open about how this has affected you and your colleagues um, from the burnout to um, you know, what, it, what it's like to be on the front lines and, and sharing some of your thoughts around what will make a, a vaccination program successful. I know that with all of this information, sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I hope people and our listeners um, that, uh, that, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that uh, we talked a lot about uh, what the future looks like and that we can beat this pandemic and we will beat this pandemic. Even with all of the challenges by working together, uh, we will be successful. So that's all the time we have for today. But I just want to remind our listeners not to forget to subscribe to our podcast. And certainly uh, until next time, be safe and be healthy.